Hey everyone, this is Prashant and I'll be your host for the VC10X podcast and today we have Morgan Flagger with us. Morgan is a managing partner at Silverton Partners. With over 25 years of experience as a venture investor and technology executive, he joined Silverton in 2006 and has sponsored 24 investments and realized 11 acquisitions and 2 IPOs. He currently sits on the boards of multiple portfolio companies. Prior to Silverton, Morgan worked with FTV Capital in San Francisco where he focused on growth investments in software and financial technology. Morgan started his career at Ingram Networks acquired by SafeNet and Quintana acquired by Mercury Interactive Corporation. In this episode, we talk about investing landscape 20 years back, growing startup ecosystem in Austin, Texas, how to conduct diligence for pre-revenue startups, what it means to have a both seat in portfolio companies, VCs fueling unsustainable growth, and a lot more. Without wasting any time, let's dive straight in. Oh wait, if you haven't subscribed to VC10X yet, please do and give us a 5-star rating if you find value in this episode. Now, let's start. Hey Morgan, so good to have you on the VC10X podcast. How are you doing? Doing great. Really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. So to get things off... Uh, let's have your story to start with. So what's your story and how you started investing? Yeah, so I was born in Santa Cruz, California, um, and, you know, definitely didn't grow up kind of with the ambition to <laughs> be a venture capitalist or really kind of get into technology. Um, got lucky enough uh, to go to Stanford for undergrad um, and just being there. I was there in the late 90s, um, which is obviously the tech run up and it was hard not to get kind of caught up in that being kind of right in the heart of Silicon Valley. So immediately got interested in that, actually started a company uh, while I was at school um, that we ended up selling to HP and then joined another group of Stanford uh, folks who started another company called Quintana um, that also had a successful outcome. So kind of, you know, started out being an entrepreneur, loved it. Um, and then one of my investors uh, actually in the third company um, that I was involved with called Ingrid Networks, um, suggested, you know, Hey, have you ever thought of getting into VC? Um, and I hadn't, uh, but you know, going to Stanford, I knew some folks that were in VC and I, I knew, uh, um, some other folks I can kind of network into. And so I went through that process, you know, pretty much everybody told me, Hey, it's great. If you get the opportunity to do it, um, you know, you should definitely. What year it. was this when he asked you this? So this was like 2004. Okay. So back then, like. Was VC even a term back then? Right, that's what I'm trying to ask. It was, yeah. you know, like that, uh, it definitely was. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, pretty well known. It, it looked a little different. Like fund sizes were smaller, check sizes were smaller, mm -hmm. um, but it was definitely something that was going on uh, in the valley. Um, you know, not as much elsewhere as it is now, but it's still going on elsewhere as well. Um, but yeah, you know, I just so I, I got that invitation. Um, and uh, I felt lucky to, to have it um, and just ended up deciding to kind of cross over um, and try my hand at investing. And I was kind of like, hey, I'll you know, do this for a couple of years. And if I like it, I'll keep going. And you know, if not, I'll, I'll go back to being an entrepreneur. Great. So it seems like you loved it and you're still going strong with it 25 years in, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I miss kind of the pure entrepreneurial side of it. I mean, the way that I would describe it is, in venture, you have a portfolio. And so there's always some companies that are struggling. There's, you know, typically some companies that are doing great as well. So it's a little bit more balanced on the entrepreneur side. You know, if things are going great, 
it's awesome, you know, and if, if things are tough, you know, there's not a ton to counterbalance it. So it's a little bit more up and down. Right. Um, one of the things I do miss about being an entrepreneur is, you know, everyone on the team is really rowing the same direction. You're kind of, you know, winning and losing together. And that camaraderie is really special. And I think if anything about entrepreneurship, that's probably what I miss the most. But now having uh, been in venture for this amount of time, you know, obviously love it as well. I, I, I kind of feel like, it's not really a job. Like you get to go meet some of the most interesting, <laughs> you know, successful folks that you could ever hope to kind of run across and then work with them on a regular basis, you know, in an environment where they're really motivated to do their best because, you know, if you succeed an entrepreneur, obviously you own, you know, a portion, hopefully a big portion of the company and, you know, you're hugely, you know, economically incentive to do well. And so that really kind of, I think brings out for the most part, the best in people. And so you got, the best people with the right incentive. And that's kind of a special place to be. And one of the reasons um, that's kept me kind of on the investing side is just the opportunity to work with folks like that on a regular basis. Right, right. And you're someone who has been with Silverton uh, from the very inception, like 2009, right? Is that correct? 2006. 2006. Um, but yeah. My bad, sorry. Yeah, 2006. And so... Talk me into the initial days of Silverton. Like now it's a fairly big and fairly successful fund, a handful of exits, a handful of acquisitions, right? So talk me into the initial days. How was it like and how did you go about raising the first fund if you're there at that time? Yeah, so um, the early days were primarily myself and, and Bill Wood. And I, I can't take credit for raising the first fund because um, Bill, uh, you know, basically did most of that. You know, he had started awesome ventures back in 84. So at that point, you know, I had like three years of investing track record, which really for the most part, isn't enough to, you know, raise, raise capital, certainly not from the folks that we raised it from initially, which were kind of, I would say kind of the best of the best institutional investors. Um, so part of the attraction for me leaving, you know, San Francisco or California to come down to Austin was the fact that Bill had already, started that process and it looked like that was going to be successful. And that was kind of, you know, hitching, <laughs> hitching on quite frankly to a lot of the work that he had already done. Um, but yeah, so we, you know, we raised the fund shortly after I joined. Um, and the thesis for us really was early stage in investing. So seed series A and predominantly seed um, and then focusing on central Texas, like really being close to the entrepreneurs, building a relationship with them you know, being able to help more with recruiting and some other things, just because certainly at that time people were hiring, you know, mainly in the area that <laughs> the firm was headquartered and us having relationships in that area just made it easier for us to bring in the right people. Um, so, yeah, we just kind of got started and, you know, have been very lucky over the past, uh, you know, I guess it's been what, 17 or 18 years now um, to have some of the better outcomes in Texas to have produce really strong returns for our investors and you know kind of been able to keep it going in a productive way since then yeah absolutely and how how big was that fund i know for a fact that right now it's like a really big fund around 250 million dollars uh but uh, how big was the fund the first fund uh 75 million 75 million yeah that's that's pretty big too yeah and the other day i was i was hosting uh seth levine uh, from the foundry foundry group and he, he he started the group around the same time like around 2009 or something like that and he was talking about the same thing like that starting up back then uh, was a lot 
expensive than what it is today, right? Uh, like right now you have so many tools. Starting companies? For the companies, yes. More for, yeah. for the companies yeah. that uh, because the technology wasn't so advanced and there were not so many tools, like there wasn't Shopify that you can quickly go up and set up a store, right? So that you need, as an investor, you need to need to allocate more capital and for them to test their hypothesis and see if that works. But right now it's totally different. Right. So how, how do you see how investing has evolved over the years uh, in the venture space, how it was back then and how it is right now? Yeah, I mean, I'd say in the in the very early days, like 2006 through 2008, um, yeah, the rounds were a little bit bigger. It did take more effort for software startups to get off the ground. There wasn't as much kind of open source and the development languages and frameworks were kind of a bit more cumbersome than they are now. And so the companies just needed more capital to to make progress and kind of get to the milestones for subsequent funding. So that's true. Um, you know, I'd say we almost pioneered and not that I want to take credit for it, but we were certainly on the forefront of, you know, kind of more of a lean startup methodology where we were putting in less money, um, you know, having more of an MVP like product approach and then continuing on um, with funding, you know, as those milestones were achieved and trying to get companies to market um, with much less capital. And I think what that allowed us to do was a couple things. One, it um, allowed us to get involved earlier. So a lot of the companies that we're investing in still today, but certainly back then, um, we were pre-product or pre-revenue. Uh, and a lot of the traditional venture firms, they they wanted to see something. Their kind of view was like, it's angels and other folks that are going to fund it and get it to a revenue stage. And then we're going to kind of take it from there um, we didn't really see it that way. So we were, you know, at that point writing sometimes as low as 250K checks or 500K checks, even though we had a reasonable size fund to kind of get those projects off the ground, um, partly because you know, the valuations were attractive at that level. But more than anything else, in Central Texas at that point, there wasn't really a huge angel community. So like if we didn't do it, it probably wasn't going to happen. And we wanted to to see those stories advanced and see those entrepreneurs have a shot. And so we kind of stepped in and, and did it. And, you know, the fact that we were able to do it with low dollars meant that we didn't have to put a ton of cash capital at risk initially, but then we could later, you know, as the companies succeeded and we got, you know, lucky or good or whatever you want to call it. And most of them succeeded and we ended up kind of following on a bunch of those investments and, um, and, and kind of proving out those stories. But we were at that point, you know, one of the few firms, you know, that was institutional that was writing <laughs> like really early, you know, small amounts of capital to kind of help get these things going. Yeah, that sounds great. And uh, are you still focused on pre-seed and seed or have you moved on to series A, series B as well? Yeah, still focused on pre-seed and seed. Um, the structure of our funds has changed. So um, we've added a new product and it's a, uh, it's called a um, opportunity fund, but it basically, it allows us to invest at a later stage, but only within the existing portfolio. So, you know, we've been fortunate enough to have several companies that, you know, have gone on to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. And we've generally like sat out on those financings because we didn't really view it to be our purview to continue to invest once the companies were raising that's about those amounts of capital. But, We've left a lot of money on the table historically because those companies have continued to accrete value and do well even after raising the larger rounds. And so that vehicle allows us to kind of participate a bit in that. Um, and we started that in 2019 for the first time. And so, 
you know, that $75 million fund that we raised in 2006 is now like a $175 million fund. So we've, you know, a little bit more than doubled the size of that, but it's really the same strategy. So still focused on central Texas, about 70% of the capital goes to work here, steer still all like seed and series A investments. Um, and we make a few more investments in, in a fund than we did um, back in you know 2006. But for the most part, you know, the seed financings have gotten bigger. So despite the fact that technology <laughs> has made things more efficient, the way that the venture market has evolved is, you know, that now there's pre-seed rounds and seed rounds. And so those financings have just gotten larger, you know, as venture has gotten kind of more capital and, you know, people have wanted to go faster, sooner. Um, and so the, the growth of our funds is really just what's required for us to play in a similar way than we've always played um, where we're, we're leading those sorts of rounds. Yeah, absolutely. And while you're investing in seed and pre-seed stage companies, what exactly are you looking for in companies? Uh, do you require an MVP that is built, a proof of concept, or should they have early customers? Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, so we, we kind of do all of the above. So I would say probably 20, 25% um, of what we what we do is like, pre-revenue. I mean, they may have some like a 25K pilot or a 50K pilot or something like that, but I kind of really put that in the bucket of, you know, kind of pre-revenue. And then most of what we do is kind of that early product market fit. So kind of 100K to a million bucks in revenue. That's kind of the bulk of what we do. And then occasionally we'll find projects uh, where the entrepreneurs bootstrap them way, themselves or raised a small amount of angel money, but got material into business and they might have a couple million dollars or, or so in revenue. And we're kind of leading the first institutional round. And all those are, are really a fit for our strategy. And these days we're kind of writing checks from like a million bucks up to about 10 in that initial financing. And then we can, you know, go up to 20 or so over the life of a company. I'd say on average, we probably are more like eight to 10 over the life of the company, but we can certainly go a lot higher if we want to. Yeah, great. And uh, what does this uh, early product market fit look like? Is it like revenue is flowing in consistently or the numbers are growing? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, certainly we're growth investors. So in pretty much all cases, like the numbers are growing. Um, you know, the things we're looking for, you know, first and foremost is team. Um, and we look for a few things um, with a founder. You know, we're, we're hopeful that they have domain expertise. It's not always required, but having that is important. Um, operating, you know, in a smaller company and kind of having seen <laughs> that wheel turn over a few times is also important. Uh, more than anything else, though, it's, it's the vision and passion that kind of gets us excited. And, you know, the vision is one thing, but, you know, being able to have a bit of charisma, um, so that they can get others to kind of follow in their footsteps and, and lead that company is something that not everyone has. Like some people have a great idea. They just can't get others to follow them. And, um, and, that, and that's kind of like in some cases a failure mode. Um, so that's something we look for. And then I'd say, you know, self-awareness is also something that's super important to us. Um, and I think it's mainly around as a leader, um, you're never going to be good at, or the best at everything, right? And so you kind of need to know what you're great at, um, need to know where you have kind of shortcomings. And, you know, admitting that doesn't mean, oh, we're just gonna 
be terrible at that as a company or, you know, it's like, this is an area where I need help. Like I need to hire somebody or I need to solicit advice or expertise. And we just find that folks that, you know, they're not aware of where they need help, you know, ends up becoming a failure mode because they don't know that, you know, whatever, they're not great at sales or, you know, they're not great at engineering. So they don't address those requirements. And if you don't address it, you know, then it's a problem. If you're aware of it, then you can fix it and, and go from there. So that's kind of a part of our process as well. And we've been lucky enough to work with a great set of founders that, you know, maybe weren't the best at everything, but were pretty darn good and knew what they needed to, to change or to, to augment, um, to be successful. And we've been helpful to them, hopefully in that process of, of bringing the right folks in to complement them. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, self-awareness is super important. And let's talk about due diligence. Uh, so what kind of due diligence do you do while you're investing in these companies? Yeah, I break it into two buckets. Um, and, and it's also different by stage. I mean, we're investing pretty early. So like we do a, a, a ton of due diligence on the team itself, because if it's, you know, if it's a pre, you know, revenue or product company, there's, there's not a ton to look at on the business side, other than the team and, and, and the market and some validating some of the thesis around that. So we certainly do that. Um, and diligence is really broken up into like, you know, pre-term sheet, like we're still trying to figure this out and then kind of post-term sheet, more confirmatory diligence, you know, on the confirmatory side, it's really just making sure that things are as advertised, you know, that <laughs> the company was incorporated, right. The cap tables, right. Um, you know, you don't have any litigation, you know, that kind of thing. And we, we do that because you have to be diligent and you have to kind of check the boxes, but what's really important is kind of the front end. And so for us, it's like references on the team um, to the extent we can get smart on the market through talking to customers, talking to analysts, doing our own research, bringing in experts. We spend a lot of time there. Um, if they do have customers, um, we do spend a lot, a bunch of time, you know, not only talking to the folks they give us, but networking into other folks, um, that kind of smell and look like they're those customers and getting their perspective to kind of get a feel for the value prop and that sort of thing. Um, those are the main areas. We actually look at the business model and forecast as well, but, you know, obviously for early stage companies, there are a lot of assumptions there. And so it's more talking to the team, understanding the assumptions, understanding where they're coming from there and like having a point of view on whether we agree or, or, or don't agree with those assumptions. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And I, I learned from your website that you are now sitting on the boards of a, a good handful of companies, right? So I wanted to understand what is it like uh, sitting on the board of a company? What are your responsibility uh, responsibilities as a board member? And while you're investing in a company, uh, do you pose it as a requirement that, okay, we need a seat, seat on the board or is it offered to you? So uh, some perspective on that as well. Yeah, I mean, our choice is typically to, to want a board seat. Um, it's not something that we have in 100% of the cases, but certainly the vast majority of, of cases we do, we like to lead the financings and, a lot of it is we think we can be helpful um, and we want to be involved at that level. We're not kind of passive investors. Um, and, you know, in terms of responsibilities, uh, the primary one, I, mean, I think people can kind of get confused sometimes as to <laughs> what the role of a board member is, but I think it's pretty simple. It's basically to help make the company successful, like full stop. Um, you know, people think, oh, we're here to protect our interests as investors. You know, our job is to like keep 
the CEO in line or, you know, figure all that stuff out. And like, you know, not really, it's really about making the company successful. And for us coming in at the stage we're coming in, like our interests are pretty aligned with the founder, you know, like we're only going to win <laughs> if the company ultimately, you know, has a successful outcome and, and that sort of thing. So I think that's pretty simple in terms of how we specifically do that. I mean, I think the biggest advantage that I or some other, you know, venture person hopefully has is we've seen a lot of game film. Um, you know, I've been part of like 20 plus exits, a hundred plus financing. So I've just seen that a lot. And what comes with that is like making a ton of mistakes. And so the biggest value that I could add to a board is like helping you not make mistakes that I've probably already made, or I've seen someone make. And so, you know, that could come in the form of like recruiting, hiring the right person, knowing when to hire the person that could be a business model error where it's like, Hey, I've, <laughs> I've seen this play out at scale and it doesn't work. You know, it, there's knowledge around like how to scale a business and when to hit the gas. And again, a lot of the times it's, you know, we've hit the gas at the wrong time <laughs> and it's broken. And uh, so we're just trying to help the company, you know, not make that mistake again. And, uh, you know, I think as a board member, if we can, if we can do that, if we can relay our knowledge in a way that's helpful, um, then we're doing, we're doing our job and we're helping the company be successful. Yep. And another thing I want you to understand is how often, uh, does the CEO engage with the board of directors? Uh, is it like a monthly meet or is it only when something needs to go or something needs to be consulted with the board of directors, something important comes up only then, or is it like a monthly thing or weekly thing or quarterly things? How does that happen? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's variation here. Um, as you might imagine, like I probably talk to most of my CEOs weekly, um, but it's clustered sometimes around activities, right? So if the company's raising money or hiring an executive um, or, you know, trying to change something up from a business model perspective, there's more engagement and, you know, everything's kind of hitting on all cylinders and uh, then, then, then it might be less, but I probably engage weekly as far as like the entire board. Um, what's super common for us is a quarterly board meeting with like a call in between. Um, some of our later stage companies that have really experienced management teams, you know, we kind of skip the call in between unless something special is going on because we kind of have a rapport and cadence. Um, but for most of the earlier companies, that's kind of the defined board cadence. And I, you know, I think it's worked pretty well for us. Great. And uh, t talking about the VC ecosystem today, since you have been in this ecosystem for about 25 years, what do you think uh, is still needed to be changed in this ecosystem? What are the flaws that you see right now that need to be worked upon? Well, I mean, I think Austin has gotten a lot better for entrepreneurs. Like if, if I could summarize it in <laughs> the simplest way possible, you know, before Silverton got started, it was more or less like a, a, you know, one kind of VC shop town, like Austin Ventures was here. They had a dominant position in this market. You know, if you didn't get funded by them, like chances are you weren't getting funded. Um, and that isn't a great environment for entrepreneurs because like VCs make mistakes all the time, right? Like if they pass on your business, you know, the assumption might be, oh, well, it's not a good business, but the other like quite likely outcome is like they were just wrong. And if you only have one at bat, 
like that's that sucks. Um, you know, somebody else could limit your business that you know might be wrong. Um, so if you fast forward to today, you know, we got started in 2006. So we provided another option to folks like Silverton Partners did. I think we did a good job of that. Awesome Ventures also doing a bunch of things. So they were doing later stage financings. They were doing buyout and growth equity. And so they weren't as focused on early stage and we were, um, which I think was helpful to those folks where we were meeting the capital needs of what they had as an early stage founder. Um, if you fast forward to today, um, you know, you got Next Coast and Live Oak and ATX Seed. And then you have like newer folks like uh, 8VC and folks that have moved to town. So lots more options uh, for entrepreneurs to go to, which, you know, you, I could have the perspective, oh, well, that's competition. Um, and, you know, that isn't great for Silverton, but I have the exact opposite approach. I mean, what Silverton's going to win if Austin has a very healthy ecosystem and entrepreneurs want to come here and, um, you know, that means them wanting to come here is a function of like, you can get funded. There's tons of talent. There's lots going on. And I think that this market has that now. Um, so I'd say 95% of what's gone on has been better, has made it better for entrepreneurs and a richer ecosystem for Austin. I'm super bullish on the go forward for Austin as well. If you were to ask me like, hey, what needs to change or what am I kind of disappointed about? I wouldn't say this is... A, a uniquely awesome thing. In fact, I know it's not, but like what needs to change in venture is like every, I don't know, seven, eight years, it feels like folks forget about like sustainable growth and they just start funding like growth at all costs and like destroying like valuation frameworks and destroying capital at problems and companies kind of have these really, um, I would say unhealthy for the most part cycles where they just hire a ton of people in the underlying unit economics don't work. And then obviously eventually that ends poorly and the whole like system kind of has an issue, which is kind of more or less what we're kind of going through now. And like, it creates a really tough period for entrepreneurs. And like in that lead up to that, you're kind of training entrepreneurs in the wrong things, which is kind of like, Hey, whatever I can do to grow revenue and raise the highest valuation and raise the most money, like that's kind of what's rewarded. And then that, that whole thing needs to be reset. And that's a painful process. So I'd, I'd rather that folks didn't forget about sustainable growth <laughs> every, uh, you know, whatever, six to eight years or whatever it happens to be and kind of, you know, continue to focus on that and be a little bit more responsible for the capital that they're putting to work, but can't have everything. Yeah. And every time the market makes sure to remind us that, okay, sustainable is the way to go, right? Unit economics, right? Yeah. It seems, it all seems like smart in retrospect, but people always tend to like forget about it and yeah, that's true. Can't imagine why. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about the future of Silverton. Uh, what are the kind of companies that you're looking or eager to invest in right now? What are the themes or sectors that you're excited by? Yeah. So historically, um, we've done a ton in B two B software. Like broadly speaking, um, we still love that segment. I, I still think that's the majority of where we'll put capital to work. Might be fifty six percent of where our capital goes specifically within B2B software, which is obviously like a huge segment. We've done a ton in security, identity management, supply chain, logistics, et cetera. Um, beyond that, um, we've also funded and are big fans of like marketplace businesses, whether those are like B2B marketplaces or, or B2C. So we've done some, you know, crazy and interesting things there. Like we 
funded a company called Sparefoot, which is now Storable, which is like hotels.com for self-storage. You know, we have the Zebra, um, you know, we did uh, Favor. So really love marketplaces. Um, and then the, the newer area, and when I say newer, it's really something we've been spending time in for like two or three years, but we're super excited about going forward is also like health tech. Um, and, you know, in, in some cases, this is a marketplace. In some cases, it's B2B software. Um, but it's just, it's such a big industry. And in order for us to really move forward as a society, take cost out of that and provide better healthcare, we need to get better at that. Um, and it's a big market and that's starting to happen. And, you know, we'd love to be on the forefront of helping fund entrepreneurs that are affecting change there. And so that's another pretty, uh, pretty active area for us. Great. Uh, now let's uh, move over to the rapid fire round uh, we'll, uh, where I'll ask you five quick questions about the fund and you have to give five quick answers. Are we ready for it? I'm ready. All right. So the first one is what are the sectors and regions you invest in? So we're pretty much all across the U.S. with a focus on Austin. Got it. And what stage you typically invest in? So uh, pre-seed, seed and occasionally a series A, but pr predominantly you know, pre-seed and seed. All right. And what's the typical check size? One to 10 million. And where can founders pitch you? So my email is morgan at silvertonpartners.com. Um, and then obviously I have LinkedIn profile and receive uh, stuff there. Um, there is a way to just generically submit stuff on the Silverton website. Um, but I do respond to direct emails and I just try to be as... Um, it's comprehensive in terms of metrics and presentations and stuff in there as possible. Um, so I have a little bit more context for your business, but I do check that. Great. Uh, last one. Where can our listeners follow you? So uh, I'm at M Flager at, on Twitter, um, have like a reasonably active like LinkedIn. And then for Silverton, which, you know, <laughs> it's part me and part everybody else. Uh, you can go to our website and sign up for the newsletter and that'll kind of keep you abreast of the things we're doing and um, some of the uh, things that are going on within the portfolio. Great. I'll make sure to plug all those links in the show notes below. It was great talking to you, Morgan. Love the stuff that you're doing and backing at Silverton Partners. Happy investing. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Take care. Take care.